Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Borg. And here we are today, once again, coming back to you after... Let's take a recap. Last show we did post-apocalyptic. Post-apocalyptic. The show before that we did... Um, Online dating. And before that was hell. Hell. Right. So if there's anything you'd like us to cover, if you're listening, <laughs> you can go to our Facebook page, make a suggestion. Well, uh, we're willing to talk about a wide array A wide array of, of subjects. Things. Yeah. Interesting weekend uh, in the world. Uh, Muhammad Ali died. Uh, and uh, what, you know, one of the things that was interesting that uh, several people raised was who is the equivalent figure in the sports world now that is, you know, really engaged in speaking out about issues and and taking political stands. Again, Muhammad Ali, you know, is a unique figure, unique time, but you don't really hear you don't really hear sports folks. They're taking very strong or vocal stands on things. Yeah, it's interesting too. When I interviewed uh, for Mockingbird's podcast, and we talked about a book, Alyssa Wilkinson, she's a TV critic, and she made an interesting comment that people, uh, like sitcoms also don't have a social agenda, by and large, like they used to. Like All in the Family, the, I mean, you had sure. sitcoms that actually had a, a sort of meaningful social commentary and then when you get into the friend seinfeld era like that yeah. stuff sort of drops away yeah it becomes kind of uh critique becomes kind of cynicism yeah well it's probably also you think the decade i mean um you know you did you the, the decade gave us on the family mash then you go into the 80s which very different political and cultural phenomena you know we uh where a neocon becomes a hero, and Michael J. Fox, you know that that TV show. That was a great show. But, Family Ties. Uh, yeah, so I think there's, you know, that's that's a, uh, yeah, he certainly was a a unique uh, cultural icon, uh, an international icon, um, and someone who uh, classic example, someone very bright, who basically was 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 not. It was barely literate. I mean, uh, you know, that's something he memorized everything, but he, you know, he got a D plus. He, he said he got the reason he got a plus was because of the Olympics or something, being an amateur champion, but, uh, and certainly a, a troubled personal legacy in so many ways, but a man who transcended his time and, and actually was a polemic figure that became a healing figure, which I think, uh, that's, that's an amazing, an amazing, um, Story also a living legacy of what um, brain injury can do to you. Let's Maybe see. we'll be saying like in twenty years the same thing about Donald Trump. He's a polemical figure that became a healing figure. Right? Yeah. Possibly. 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 <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Speaking, of Donald Trump had a very bad weekend, but uh, but not according to him. I guess maybe. Uh, uh, according to the rest of the world. <laughs> yeah, I just love that. Like, we like, well, do you think that, you know, the Muslims then couldn't be, or could, would be unfair to you? Possibly, possibly. <laughs> I'm building a wall. I mean, possibly. <laughs> yeah, he's he's really, he's taken the race issue to a whole different level. That's for, that's for sure. And uh, and what's even as dis, as problematic as as what he says, although, you know, he's been consistent. I think what's troubling is the Republican leaders who have backed him and how they are uh, 
still supporting him in spite of these remarkably un-American things he's saying. Sometimes you can't put the genie back in the bottle. That's like true. It's, 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 you true. create something. You can't get the. It's so interesting. Yeah. It's, the political, it's, yeah. The, the Trump political nuclear age has been unleashed. Yeah. You know, you and I were talking a little bit about this. That um, I'm I'm worried about the election of 2024 because I think what this whole cycle has opened up. Um, to me, it's the candidate we don't know yet who could be who could be really the true totalitarian. I think that's Yeah, I that's, think that's true. I think Donald Trump, if you look if you look at the stuff he said, like they were playing thing, things that he said when Romney ran about how like right. that you can't be this unkind on, on immigration and things like this. So I think like yeah, I think that Trump has probably manipulated um like some cross currents out there. But yeah. What about when some when it gets bet with this when somebody like who sincerely who's not just a showman or a kind of uh, guy who's mastered media and stuff like that, but yeah, who really uh, has some extreme convictions and and that's really who they are. Like yeah, no, <laughs> that, it, it could it could happen. Now, but you know, I think you you're right. Trump is bringing different people together. For instance, I saw that there is a new social media group called Tramps Against Trump. And that if you somehow prove that you're voting against Trump, they'll send you a naked picture of themselves. And at the same time, a conservative gospel coalition is uh, advocating that their people consider voting for Hillary Clinton as opposed to Trump, that as an evangelical Christian, you can't really support Trump. So, But, I, but Hillary Clinton is not promising to send anybody any erotic photos. That's probably wise for any candidate. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So anyway, yeah, it's, it's just a strange, strange time we live in. Yeah. And, um, you know, everybody talks about this kind of being a new thing. And I do think it is, I mean, it has its own version of, of there have been some really dark uh, and uh, shameful political contest in the history of of our of our republic matter of fact i mean two of the greatest americans ever to live had one of the dirtiest campaigns the you know the adams jefferson campaign was really despicable in the kind of rhetoric uh, that uh they used but um you know this does seem to be to be something different and something new um and as a historian i'm kind of i'm kind of uh often suspect of, of uh, people who say something new is going on, but, but certainly, um, certainly there can be certain things arise in, in times that are unique, and I do think we're in a kind of a unique time. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that, that things are... I mean, David Brooks in his book, The Social Animal, says that... Uh, t he said the best class he ever took in college was on the British and, Fr and French Enlightenment. And he said that what he said, while science generally doesn't often create new philosophies, it often enthrones or dethrones old ones. Yeah. And sure. so he, I mean, the whole point of that book for him, I mean, one of the underlying threads is that he thinks that everything we know about neuroscience, depth psychology, social psychology, that all this stuff is, is showing that the British Enlightenment thinkers were right by and large, and the French were wrong. That you really, things like tradition, uh, sentiment, like these things are really important, uh, and you can't just kind of rebuild human nature from the ground up, like right. like you know the, some French Enlightenment thinkers thought. So I think there are, 
yeah, uh, things like our media climate and other things like that, um, they do, I think, create the possibility for old philosophies to emerge, but maybe maybe new ones too. I mean, maybe there well, are. or maybe there's you know like the whole idea of you know you know thesis and antithesis coming together, and and you know the synthesis has elements of the of the two things that have come before it, but it it does become something kind of unique. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but it's, you know, I mean, this idea of originality to me is kind of a, uh, is, is an interesting one. Uh, you know, you think, for instance, there's all kinds of strange uh, intellectual property cases going on around music right now. Um, you know, for instance, there is a, a suit going against Led Zeppelin claiming that they had stolen a, you know, stolen Stairway to Heaven from his previous set of this group. And I can't remember the name of the group. I mean, there's also a Renaissance piece that sounds remarkably uh, like <laughs> <laughs> like uh, Stairway to Heaven. But there, you know, there's been suits that have been won and some interesting, you know, the, uh, um, you know, the, the, it's an interesting one because of all these sampling of music right now. I mean, is there, you know, there's only so many notes and there's only so many keys. How do you create something truly original uh, is to me an interesting question. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, like, this is like Pythagorean, Pythagoras, right? Like, you know, all these mathematical formulas and things like this are out there and we're discovering them. Like they, they pre-exist. I mean, that's one way to think about it. Right. Well, I once uh, heard Tom Petty's being interviewed and I don't know if he was uh, getting ready to get high or was high or coming out of a high. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the three. <laughs> but he said, you know, God's already written all the songs. I just need to find them. That's how he, that's how he saw the creative process. Yeah, as one of discovery. Right. But, you know, you think of someone like Mozart. I mean, there are these kind of amazing, you know, now again, someone like Bach who, and Beethoven who the, um, particularly Beethoven in mind, where the creative process was artists and over a long period of time. But apparently Mozart, for the most part, it was just kind of this, uh, you know, this kind of flight of genius that would come to him like the angels were speaking to him. And, uh, um, you know, I, I think that that's an interesting phenomenon. Are they just a genius or are they just tapped into something bigger than themselves or both? It's interesting. I, Tim Ferriss on his uh, podcast had a guy named Mark Anderson, Andreessen, who was like a legendary entrepreneur, innovator in Silicon Valley. I mean, like this guy is, uh, I mean, he's he's an investing an entrepreneurial legend. And he was asking what, Ter Ferris was asking what he reads, and he said he reads a lot of history, um, especially stuff from the late 19th century, early 20th century, because of so much of the discoveries technologically were forerunners to shaping the world which we live in, he invested. And the end, he said he studies value investors, but he says, even though he's the opposite of that kind of animal, as he's like, you know, Warren Buffett invests in Heinz ketchup because he figures people have been using it for 100 years. They're going to be using it for 100, year, 100 more years. He's like, I run from places like that. Like, so when Warren Buffett fails, it's because he thought something wouldn't change that we thought would. Right. And when we fail, it's because something didn't change that we thought and hoped would. Uh, but he actually was saying that, like, they were asking about the economy, and he was saying that people, you know, get worried about displacement through AI and robotics and all these things. He said he worries the opposite, hmm. that actually we're not innovating fast enough, and that every one of us has a job because something changed and created right. a new industry. and created. A new... So he was saying that, that basically uh, 
We want more products, more goods and services, more medical breakthroughs, more uh, discoveries in the arts and, and enter, entertainment, all these things that make us a, a better world. And so he kind of, that's how he invests. I mean, he, he wants to see new things. And, and he, it was interesting because he was asking questions like, one of the things he's really interested in is like, why do we have the Tesla as a car and not a plane? Is it too is it too expensive? Is it not physically possible? Is it because it's not incentivized the right way? Like like why, why do we have all these all these things? And um, it's just a really interesting conversation because the, the nature of uh, discovery and and how things get discovered and how things like he was in this debate with whether or not like Twitter was a meaningful innovation or creation. He's like, of course, it's, it helps spark spark political revolutions. Right. I mean, there are things like. You don't, I mean, some of these things in social media that we go, oh, everybody rags on social media and all that stuff. But it's, it, it, it's just, I was just listening to Howard Stern interview um, James Corden, who is on Ephraim Colbert. And he was saying, I don't even look at ratings anymore. So, we, well, we look at YouTube and things like that. Like, we look at our, how often our stuff is viewed because, as far as I can tell, the purpose of the late night show is relevance. Like, look, show the network's relevant. Mm. And, like, the ratings aren't as relevant as... Like if 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 there's X number of million subscribers to our YouTube channel, that's a much better indicator to me of like how because people just don't not that many people turn on the television at twelve thirty seven anymore. Like it's right, not a right. so it's just an interesting kind of it got me thinking about the nature of the world we live in and how what things stay the same and what things are really malleable. Right. Well, you know, in some of our discussions about. That uh, how do you look at theological issues and biblical truth and Christian uh, you know Christian understandings? I mean, it makes some people very nervous when we start talking about how change affects those things. But there is nobody alive uh, who claims to be a Christian who thinks exactly like they did in the first century. That's just unaccessible to us. And yet, we you know the idea of how you know how do you you know what. What stays the same and what changes? Uh, I mean, I quoted this often quoted, um, you know, uh, Pelican's quote that tradition is the living faith of the dead and traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. I, I think that there, it, it's the issue of what do we hold on to? What, what, is, uh, what is coherent? That's how my uh, professor Becker used to talk about. What is the coherency of a Christian truth or the co inner coherency of a biblical text and what are its contingencies, and how do those two things interact? And I think, uh, I think how we talk about that theologically, and when it comes to you know religious ethics and such, um, you know, I think the same kind of dynamics can be there that you just said are better in the market. Yeah, I think like one of the best shows that I think dealt with a lot of these kinds of issues in a really adroit and like sophisticated way was Battlestar Galactica. The remake. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it was it, like, because I think people did, were not as interested in the first one. Uh, largely, I mean, maybe it was the era or whatever, but also like AI was just like a sci-fi concept. Right. Now, now it's not. And now yeah. anybody can play with AI. Like it, it, one of the things that Mark Anderson was saying is, what I want to know is um, if you want to look for innovation, look what nerds do on the evenings and their weekends. Because nerds, they have day jobs, but then look what they're playing around with. And he's like, certain things like AI, like you used to have to work for a couple companies to have access to it. Now everybody can play with it. Google's open. Like he was just talking about all this stuff. It's amazing. But 
you know, in in in, this, in the remake, you know, you have these Cylons who are exterminate this race of Homo sapiens that live in this alien galaxy. But the Cylons like have consciousness and they have a god and they're monotheistic and they've actually rejected the the, the human beings on, on this in this galaxy are actually worshiping the Greek uh, pantheon. Hmm. But the Cylons seem a little more like monotheistic. Something, you know, a, a little more like, I'd say it's less like Judaism because it's a little more, it was a little more missionary. Like mm. it was much more like Islam. Uh, and it, it, they really mock kind of the human superstition and stuff, but like a lot concept of consciousness. And so like, is the church going to find itself in a position where it's got to figure out if it's okay to baptize an android mm. with artificial intelligence that, that conceives of itself as in need of some sort of redemption? Right. And, um, you know, our technology, you know, always runs ahead of our ethics. Yeah. I mean, you know, there was a, um, there was a ruling that the crossbow was, it was impossible to use the crossbow justly in a just war because it, it was so deadly accurate. And, <laughs> and, uh, but guess what? The crossbow stayed and uh, the church ruling got over overturned or ignored. I mean, right now, even as we speak, they are uh, experimenting, working with growing human organs inside pigs and other animals. Yeah. Um, that they are in laboratories um, mixing human and animal DNA. And they're saying that, you know, this is for, you know, this is the idea they always give. Well, someday down the road, this could be a great way to have all the organs we need to to uh, harvest, but uh, you know, uh, we're already there. We're already there. And um, I mean, someone was critiquing the, you know, there was this person saying, well, they find this, you know, to be highly unethical and shouldn't be done, but what there are no constraints really. I mean, there are, sure, there are some legal constraints, but uh, I, I don't know that that's a constraint that's ever kept uh, human uh, progress at bay, and we have to realize that almost every technological advantage and the things that we benefit from, most of them uh, were also used for great destruction and continue to be done that way. Yeah, and I think the mystery of human being, right, is I guess we're probably the only species that we know of for whom there's a tension between is and not. Yeah. Like, like if you're an elephant or a badger, you do the maximum of your capacities. Like, whatever you can do, you do it. You know, right. you, you pollinate or you hunt or you... Like, the amazing thing, like, I can't think of another species that's capable of turning uh, a predator into its prey. Hmm. Like, I, I mean, I, like, I don't think... I can't think of a single example in nature where that happens. Hmm. But we actually can do that. Right. So that's the... I mean, that's sort of the tension, I guess, of what it means to be a person is that there's this, like, we can, we actually are able to ask ourselves, ought we self-actualize in this direction or not? So maybe there are not any new issues. I mean, maybe there's not any new moral issues. I mean, in, in the most basic sense, is this right? Should we do this? I mean, are, are there are new circumstances in which the questions have to be asked, but, uh, you know, am I my brother's keeper? Uh, you know, whatever you do, don't play God in in this kind of way. Um, or maybe that's that's too simplistic because God says, you know, go out and be like me. 
but there are boundaries. There, there were always boundaries put around human creative capacity to be divine. It, it, it worked as long as humans remembered they weren't God. The trouble with playing God when you don't think there is a God or don't recognize God or compartmentalize God into some other category, then there are no constraints. Yeah, I think that maybe the only, maybe a new one is our awareness that we could break the planet. Yeah. Because I think that like you could conceive of like maybe messing up a stream or doing something that would hurt other, but like the fact that like what we're doing could actually cause extinction level sorts of realities down the road. Well, actually there are extinction realities going on right now, which it's just not... Um, yeah, I'm, yeah. I was thinking on a mass level. Yeah, we've seen species go extinct, but I'm thinking like, like all of, including us. I mean, right. we could make ourselves extinct. Right. Yeah. No, I think definitely that's that's uh, and if and the fact that there, I mean, even if you are skeptical, and I think I mean a good you know a good thinking and analytical mind will ask skeptical questions, but when you <laughs> Look at the face of the data. And even, for instance, let's say, okay, there's change going on. It's serious. All right. Shouldn't we look at every possibility? Is there, even if it's a natural cycle, we now have capacities maybe to, to minimize the potential damage. But the fact that that isn't even being talked about in certain circles just boggles the mind. Yeah. That, it, me too. I think this is a big. This is a thing where you want to play it a little on the safe side. I would think like, this isn't one of those things where, like, if it's a close call, I think I want to bet, I, I want to err on the side of saving the planet. Right. You know. I mean, I, you know me. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm cautious. But I'm, <laughs> that's generally how I think about these things. You know, it's interesting. We start out talking about are there any new ideas, and I think potentially there's certainly a lot of new things out there happening. It seems though that human nature hasn't changed, at least uh, how the biblical narratives uh, describe how humans are, that seems to be fairly, uh, still a pretty accurate picture uh, with both the great possibilities uh, of humans created in the image of God and those who have been touched and changed by the transformational love of God, but also, um, you know, the cry of Cain and the blood of Abel um, still seem to me to echo through every day of our, our existence here and um, gives us the potential to be at the brink. Yeah, I don't know. If you're like a Heidegger fan, you might say that human nature does change in the sense of it, like being isn't this fixed thing. Like we, like the human being, Dasein, as Heidegger would say, it's like it does kind of change given the realities that we find ourselves in. Like I, I was listening to like a interview with a Heidegger scholar saying that like reflecting on what, what terrorism does to human being like dot, human, like, so you're just existing with it, with this anxiety that an attack could come like a mass attack, like th that could instantly come, you know, nothing's coming over the horizon uh, it's a, it, you know, and, and then what it does to the threat. Like, he was just saying that there's there, certain things like that. Or, you know, we talked um, a couple weeks ago about the interior self. You know, uh, uh, some people argue that, you know, with Augustine's confessions comes this right. sort of interiority that seems like something different. Um, 
So, although there's aspects of Jeremiah and the Psalms that sort of surely reflect a kind of an interior focus, and I would say, I mean, if you were living in a monastery in the British Isles in the eighth century, you would live in constant terror that those longboats were going to roll up. I mean, there's not a monastic community that survived the Viking invasions in in, in England, and so I mean, or I mean. You know, you were around when the Mongols were running, you know, Genghis Khan. and all. I mean, the idea of, of imminent danger, uh, it seems to me that that actually, in the history of humanity, has been more of a norm than an exception. But I think that's what's different about it, because then you're regular, you, you, you assume that even uh, urban civilization is fragile. Like, that, right. but he, like for people in, you know... Uh, you know, a post nine eleven kind of world for a country that is not used to domestic attack, where you feel like, you know, we're, we're we don't have really a, these security threats, at least like that, like these instantaneous okay. attacks. So, it, it I think it creates a different kind of dynamic because you it's hard to conceive of. Okay, right. So each each generation has the opportunity to forget what it, the previous generations have known or lived, and so you are kind of. Uh, yeah, for instance, what is Germany like now? Yeah, you know, what's the German psyche as opposed to what it was, say, in 1914 or 1938? Yeah. So yeah, no, yeah. So I do think yeah. So there may be there, and certainly uh, we you know we we harken back to the founding fathers and we conveniently forget and ignore all the dark parts of that, the founding of our country. Uh, including, you know, the, the mass genocide of the native people that were here. Uh, so maybe that is true. I mean, we have these kind of selective memories, uh, but we can only, you know, the trouble is you can only live in the time that you're in. And so sometimes we look back and try to put ourselves in previous positions to try to get some insights. And sometimes that gives the illusion, well, this is nothing unique. But but I guess you could argue that every Every age has its own unique challenges, and there may be variations on themes of how we deal with those. But because we're in a different place in a different time, it is there are going to be original uh, problems with different kinds of solutions. The more things change, the more they stay the same and change. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 